Well, the book of Ruth, we're back in the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 3, and finishing it up today, we're going to do the rest of the chapter, we just kind of started off last week, but if there were a personal section in the Bethlehem newspaper, there might be an entry that sounded like this, single Moabite woman, widowed, childless, with mother-in-law, searching for Bethlehem businessman with a view to marriage, must love mother-in-law. <laughs> might read something like that, but it's not too far off. It's humorous, but it's not too far off from what we see happening in the story again this week. Uh, last week, we talked about how um, Ruth had met up with uh, Boaz. Naomi had heard that one of her relatives was pretty smitten with her daughter-in-law, Naomi. And so her mama mind jumps into overdrive and she starts going into matchmaker mode, trying to figure out how they can take advantage of this situation. And so she concocts this plan, this bold plan, to send Ruth down to the threshing floor. She tells her to wash up, tells her to change her clothes, put on some perfume, and get down to the threshing floor where Boaz is gonna be that evening, guarding the grain. And we talked about the whole process of bringing in the grain and how they would cut it out of the field and how the field in the Bible is a symbol of the world, the world right? And they would take it out, they would bring it to the threshing floor and they would pour it all down there. And the threshing floor was the place of separation. It was the place of pounding where they would you know, separate the grain from the stalks. And then in that process, they would also do winnowing where they would take these big forks and they would throw it up in the air and they would choose this spot where there was a pretty good breeze blowing because they would do it in the, in the evenings and they would throw it up in the air and the breeze would blow away all of the chaff, all of the worthless stuff, and then all the grain would just fall to the ground. So they were literally separating the useful from the useless. And there was multiple times in the Bible where um, chaff was used uh, by, by Jesus and by John the Baptist to talk about the Pharisees and the religious people that day who he considered pretty much worthless because you guys aren't concerned about God and you're not concerned about other people. You guys are just concerned about making yourselves and the chaff representing that stuff in our lives that can keep us from being as effective in ministry. And that's what we're all called to. We're all called to ministry. Um, and unfortunately, in our day and age, and it was the same back then, that a lot of Christians um, have too much of the world in them to really be used effectively in ministry. And so what we're called to in this winnowing process is getting a lot of this junk out of our life. And then lastly, there was the sifting that took place where they would pour you know, the grain that was left over into these big sifters and sift it out so that the little impurities, the rocks and the pebbles and things like that could be discarded. And how those little things um, really symbolize the hidden sins, the things in our life that need to be cleared out um, and get rid of those things. And so um, the difference is um, that when we go through these trials, we go through the pound and we go through the winnowing, um, how we react. Um, Jesus told Simon, he said, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you and all the disciples so that he can sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that when you are converted, after that, you can be restored and you can help your brothers. And Jesus and, you know, Simon, they both told us, Paul told us, we're going to go through sifting. We're going to go through hard times in life. But the difference is how we react to it in the middle of a crisis, which is what we're going to see here today. And we finished by talking about how God gives us, um, you know, a crown instead of ashes and how he anoints our head and how, you know, he anoints it with the oil of gladness. And then he gives us, um, you know, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness and how clothes in the Bible are symbolic of our identity 
and how God gives us a new identity. And we see this through the Bible. We are to be, in Isaiah 61, we're to be clothed in His righteousness. We're supposed to be robed in His righteousness. We talked about the prodigal son and how uh, when he came back home, he was given a change of clothes. And he was given a ring and he was given shoes to put on his feet. All of this symbolizing that he was getting a brand new identity. And once we find our identity, who we are in Christ, then we can just sit at his feet and listen to what he wants to say to us. That's what Naomi told Ruth. She said, do all this stuff, go down there, uncover his feet and sit there and wait till he wakes up and see what he's going to say to you. Uh, I found this story uh, yesterday actually and I was talking to Alicia I'm like have you ever heard of the story of this dog and this dog in Japan and its loyalty to its owner and she said yeah I think they made a movie about that I was like really has anybody seen the movie Hachi like a couple people okay <laughs> I haven't watched it I'm not sure if I will Alicia said we watched it it was so memorable I don't I didn't even remember it but the story is pretty inspiring it's about this dog this Akita dog in Japan and he was born in 1923 and he was adopted by this uh, professor and was raising him. And the professor every day would go down to the train station because he'd take a train into town to go to the university. And so every day their routine was the dog would come with him to the train station and then he would come back to meet his master when he returned. And one day uh, the master was um, pretty old and he had a stroke when he was uh, at work at the university and so he did not return. And so the dog waited at the train station. True story. Dog waited at the train station for nine years and nine months. He was there every morning and every evening waiting to see if his owner was going to come back. And people, um, obviously, that were doing that every day saw the dog and they started to bring treats. And the dog became so well known, one of his students uh, came and wrote a story about it. And it kind of went viral in Japan in the 1930s. And so, Anyway, they actually built a bronze statue that they put at the train station where this dog was. And they eventually moved it, but there's like a plaque there with his paw prints and everything. And so it's this huge, uh, you know, inspiring story about a dog and his loyal love for his owner. And people get real inspired by this. And, you know, if they do movies and make statues and do all of this stuff for a dog, right, that shows this kind of loyal love. Uh, and then we have this story of Jesus and his loyal, incredible love for us. And people kind of turn their nose up at it or reject it is, you know, pretty amazing to me. But they get excited about this dog. Um, I got a little, I skipped ahead. That's the danger in not having the pages. I can just, so I named this one Hesed Shesed. Um, the word Hesed is a Hebrew word, and it's full of all kinds of meaning, but um, it means basically it's translated in the Bible as God's steadfast love or his loving kindness, and it's used over and over again. It's used 250 times in the Bible, 100 of those times being in the Psalms. David was very familiar with God's loving kindness, with his steadfast love towards him, and it's only used three times here in the book of Ruth. But if you go and type said into Google, like almost all of the stuff that you see is the book of Ruth because of this story of God. It's a picture of God's steadfast, loving kindness towards us. Um, Boaz's love towards Ruth. And when our kids were dedicated, when they were little, uh, the church that we were going to at the time, they would hand out these uh, Jesus Storybook Bibles. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these. Um, they're fantastic uh, little Bibles. 
and we would read these stories with our kids. And at the end of every story, it would end like this. And I just think it does a really nice job of summarizing what has said is. And it says that Jesus loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's God's said love towards us. And he sealed it with covenants. He made covenant promises to his people to let them know this is how far my love for you, my steadfast love goes. And really the best word that we have for it in our vocabulary is probably the word loyalty. Uh, loyal love, promised love that isn't going to go away. Um, there's an Old Testament book uh, written by uh, the first Italian in the Bible, the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. I'm kidding. The book of Malachi, the Old Testament prophet. Um, God is talking to his people and he says, I have loved you. And he's talking to his people. And the people say, in what way have you loved us? And so God starts talking about all the different ways that he's shown love to them. And he says, listen, didn't Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, their descendants, he's, he says, didn't, didn't Jacob have a brother, a twin brother named Esau? And didn't I say, Isaac, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? Now, a lot of people read that verse where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, and they have a real problem with it. Like, how could God say that he hated Esau? But Esau rejected his birthright. Esau rejected God. And the question isn't, how could God hate Esau? Really, the question is, how could God love Jacob? Because Jacob was a conniver. He was a schemer. He was a liar, and God loved him. He had chosen him. Uh, one of the central points that runs throughout all the scriptures is that the people that God created covenant with, the people that he cut covenant with, were not perfect. They were jacked up people, just like you and me. Because the covenant didn't depend on them, it depended on God. And his promises delivered us from ourselves to bring his promises to reality. Thank goodness it didn't depend on us. Um, God made these covenants, he made a covenant in the Garden of Eden where he told them, listen, one day I'm going to send a savior to save you to crush the head of the serpent. And then he made a covenant with Noah. He said, no, I'm not going to flood the world anymore. And he gave us a rainbow in the sky as a symbol. And unfortunately that you know symbol has been hijacked today. And it's been given the word pride, which is a really unfortunate word to associate with that because you know Satan in the garden, I mean, his original sin was pride and that was what was used so and then after Noah how did Noah respond to that covenant well he ended up getting drunk and you know passing out naked in his tent and then God made a covenant with Abraham we said Abraham I'm gonna make you a great nation I'm gonna you know all kinds of people as number is the the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky are gonna come out of you uh, at the time when he didn't have any kids and he was over you know almost a hundred years old and Abraham Abraham responded by giving his wife away to Pharaoh and then trying to have a kid with the servant girl to try to make that promise happen on his own. And then God gave, you know, the covenant to, to Moses uh, at Mount Sinai with the law. And uh, Moses was a murderer. And then he made a covenant with David that one of your relatives is going to sit on the throne forever. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. Uh, all of these guys, imperfect, but God's covenant promise was perfect. Thank goodness, until he sent his son Jesus to be the forever covenant kinsman redeemer. So today we'll see the story, the hero of our story, shows this steadfast love towards Ruth, who needs to be redeemed, even though she's not worthy of being redeemed. 
even though she goes about it in the wrong way. Okay, so we'll read this chapter 3, verse 6. We're just going to read the rest of the chapter. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. I thought if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. She held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city, and she came to her mother-in-law, and she said, uh, Naomi said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Ruth basically goes in and pops the question. I mean, she drops the question, you know, Will you or won't you marry me? The, the question is hanging in the night air. What's he going to do? And Boaz says, I'll do it. So Ruth comes when Boaz has fallen asleep, uncovers his feet and wait. I mean, can you imagine? I, I don't know how long she waited, but if she was, it says that around midnight, but she could have been laying there for a couple hours just with the doubt in her mind and the anxiety and what's going to happen. Like, will he redeem us? Wake up, <laughs> you know? Wake up! This is driving me crazy. She could have been there for a little while. It can be agonizing. And sometimes when we find ourselves on the threshing floor of life, that place where we're getting pounded, that place where we're going through a separation, a winnowing, it can feel like we're there for a long time. Uh, and it can feel like God is asleep, like He's not paying attention, like He's you know, just kind of unaware of our circumstance. Um, but you know, kind of like Jesus in the front of the boat when He's sleeping. And the disciples are freaking out because they're in the storm. And they're like, don't you care? They wake up like, don't you care that we're all going to die? But Jesus wasn't unaware of what was going on. He was going to respond in just the right time, just the right timing. So she comes in the middle of the night when it's pitch black. Um, you know, they call this kind of the dark night of the soul, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but in the middle of the night is kind of when I could be prone to, to being a little bit depressed kind of prone to despair when everything else in the day is gone you're just kind of left with your thoughts and everything that's going on things can seem a little dark uh, but that's when Boaz here in the darkness shines out pretty bright and that's what happens when we come to Jesus um, his light is going to shine bright there's a tremendous risk in what she's doing it's very dangerous going there in the middle of the night um, if she gets caught it could be bad for her but she's desperate and what we really need to be uh, is desperate for Jesus and for his grace. So she uncovers his feet to wake him up. When my kids were little, um, I, it always amazed me. They uh, would always kick the covers off in the middle of the night. I'd cover them up and they would fall asleep. I'd walk by and they would have completely kicked the covers off. I would go and cover them up again and then a couple hours I'd walk by again 
and they would be completely, you know, uncovered. Rihanna's like this, you know, right now. But I can tell you that now, if something comes off, if the covers come off in the middle of the night, I'm waking up pretty quick. Is there anybody that sleeps without covers? That's weird. That's weird, man. <laughs> but if it comes off, I'm waking up pretty quick, and that's what's going on here. Remember, they did the threshing floor where it would have been kind of windy because that's where they were doing the winnowing. So there's a breeze going on. It's kind of cool at night, uncover his feet. There's nothing inappropriate going on right now. Um, and my mother-in-law is fond of saying, you know, things will look better in the morning. You know, things will look better in the light of day. Uh, there's a reason why we say that. Uh, because of this low low point and remember he was she responds by saying as he wakes up and he says who are you um, I think it's impressive he wakes up and he doesn't overreact right he doesn't act inappropriately uh, he is a godly man who wakes up um, not threatened not freaking out in the middle of what could look like a crisis he just responds who are you? He says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you're a redeemer. Ruth is at his feet early in the morning. And I think that's a, a principle that's good for all of us to kind of remember that if we come to him in the morning, if we are at his feet in the morning, if we open the word, if we do devotions, if we pray in the morning, if we can be found at his feet, those of you that have made that a practice, you know that it's true, that that is something that is extremely beneficial to start out your day. It's going to change your mood. It's going to change your outlook as you start out the day. Um, so when Boaz met Ruth uh, earlier in the field, he said, May the Lord repay you under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now she uses the same verbiage here when she says, spread your wings, your covering over your servant for your a kinsman redeemer. Um, now it's interesting here because that word wings, um, this is so cool. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to uh, convey this um, as, as appropriately as I would like to, but the, re the word wings in the Hebrew can also refer to the corners or the hem of a garment. And so basically she's saying, Spread your wings of protection over your servant. But she had also uncovered a feet. So it was kind of like spread the hem of your garment over us, your garment of protection, symbolically. Now, this is a huge point. Back in Numbers, Numbers 15, God is saying to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generations and put a cord of blue on tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. God knows this. He's like, put these tassels on the edge of your robes. All the guys are supposed to wear them. When you see them, you will remember the commandments. So they were supposed to remind people of the commandments, God's instructions. It spoke of his authority. So all the men would have had these tassels on the hem of their garment, which they were called wings. Okay, back to Malachi. Malachi 4.2. The prophet is writing here about the great day of the Lord. And God says this, he says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. The Son of Righteousness, capital S, will rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Healing in his wings, in the tassels. Are you with me? Okay. Cool story. Mark 5. We have this amazing story. You guys know it. The crowd followed around Jesus and thronged around him. And there was a woman. A woman came to him and she had this 
issue of blood where she had been bleeding for 12 years. And she had spent all kinds of money with the doctors trying to get this figured out. Nobody could help her. She had gotten worse over the years. And she sees Jesus walking through the town. And she's heard all the stories about this guy, about how he heals people. And she starts to think to herself, if this guy's the Messiah, and what, what Malachi wrote was true, then there's healing in this guy's wings, in his garments, in the hem of his garments. If I can just touch the hem of his garments, the wings, I can be healed. She believes it. And so all these people are pressing around and she sneaks up and she touches his robe. Now this is a big deal. Because she's bleeding, she is unclean. She's unclean. She's not supposed to be around other people. If other people touch her, they're going to be unclean too. But she doesn't care because she's so desperate, she just wants to get to Jesus. And if you think about it, being unclean, she was that would have disqualified her from being married. It would have disqualified her from taking part in any kind of religious ceremonies. She was cut off from man and she was cut off from God, essentially. And she sneaks up to touch Jesus. And when he feels it, he feels power come out of him. And he says, who touched me? And these people are all crowded around him. And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? Like, Jesus, all these kinds of people are touching you. What do you say, who touched me? And it says that she, she was scared when he turned around. And she came to him, you know, kind of in fear and said, I'm the one that touched you. And he says, you know, your faith has made you well. Because she believed that he was the Messiah and that there was healing in his wings. Um, it was a popular belief in that day that a person's dignity versus authority was wrapped up in what they were wearing, and these tassels were no different. Um, last week we talked about 2 Samuel 24, where David was king and he took the census and it was a huge blunder, um, and how the angel ended up at the threshing floor. If we flip back to 1 Samuel 24, we have this story before David was king, and we see King Saul. And at this time, King Saul is obsessed with trying to kill David, because Samuel had anointed David to be the next king because Saul had jacked up. That meant that his son David was not going to be king. And so he's chasing David around trying to kill him. And they come upon, he took 3,000 soldiers, 3,000 hand-picked men. These were fighters. And they went out to find David because they knew that he was out in the desert. And they came to this cave and he went in and the Bible says that he went in to relieve himself. So we don't know, he was going to the bathroom or he was going to take a nap, maybe both. So he goes in there to rest. And David and his men just happened to be in the same cave there in the back. And David's mighty men say, this is it, man. This is your chance. God has delivered Saul into your hands. Go get him. And so David kind of sneaks up to Saul, and it says that he cut off the corner of his robe. And so Saul leaves. He goes back out. They're all hiding in the back of the cave. And it says after he got back, David's heart struck him, and he felt bad that he cut off the corner of his robe. That always confused me. I'm like, dude, Saul's probably got a couple hundred robes, man. What difference does it make that you cut off the corner of one robe? But the big deal here was that he had cut off that corner that had the tassel on it that was symbolizing his authority, right, that, that God has given him. This was kind of a foreshadowing that the kingdom is being torn from you, right? It's going to pass to me, to David, and when he did this, it was, a, it was a big insult. It was kind of a sign of disrespect. And so David's heart, you know, struck him after he did that. And that's what was happening here with David and Saul. I always thought that was kind of strange. But in, in Ruth asking Boaz to spread his wings over her and Naomi, he's basically saying, listen, we want to come under your authority. We want to come under your protection. And Boaz says, 
I'll do it. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What was her first kindness? Her first kindness, her first act of hesed, which is what your first, you know, hesed was, your second hesed is greater than your first, which he was taking care of his relative, Naomi. Um, she didn't return to Moab. She came with her to Bethlehem. She took care of her. She went out into the fields to glean for her. And now she's coming intentionally to Boaz. And I think it, it really pleases the Lord when we come to him intentionally. There's lots of things you guys could have been doing this morning uh, instead of coming here to the park uh, to listen to me talk um, and to have some hot dogs. But you guys came here. And I think it pleases the Lord when we choose him instead of lots of other things. And that was a real distraction for her because she even tells Naomi when she came back, she said, yeah, he even told me to stay with his young men, which is not what Boaz told her. He said, stay with my young women. And that's what Naomi told her. He said, no, 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 stay with the young women. So that was a temptation for her. But here she has gone intentionally to Boaz. And where do we go when, when life gets hard, when things get tough? What do we turn to? Do we turn to things of the world to try to fill us up, to try to make us feel better about ourselves, about our situation, so we can forget about it for a while? Or do we turn to the one that can actually bring us peace, to the one that can actually rescue us? In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. I will in no wise turn away, is what the King James says. When we come to Jesus, he will not turn us away. And then he says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. Ruth has done everything she can, and she simply lays it all out there. And Boaz says these these three words that we hear all throughout the Bible. It's one of the most common commands, and yet we don't seem to really get it. He says, do not fear. It says 365 times in the Bible, do not fear, in some form or another. One for each day of the year. And yet we hear it, but we don't really take it in. And then we tend to freak out when life goes sideways. Um, God does not mean for us to spend our time here on earth being anxious or being fearful. Um, that is not the way he has designed it. Um, I read a quote by Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish theologian and philosopher and writer uh, where, where religion is concerned. And he wrote this. He said, the greatest danger is not that a father... So this is written about the danger for a child as it pertains to a parent and then being religious. He says, the greatest danger is not that his father or tutor should be a free thinker, even in his being a hypocrite. The danger lies in his being a pious, God-fearing man, and in the child being convinced thereof, but that he should nevertheless notice that deep in his soul there lies a hidden unrest, which consequently not even the fear of God or piety could calm. The danger is that the child in this situation is almost provoked to draw a conclusion about God that God is not infinite love. So the danger is, is that our kids see us as very religious. We pray, we go to church, we read our Bibles, but that they also see inside of us that there's a storm brewing, that we're constantly anxious, that we're constantly worried, even though we say we believe and have faith in Jesus. That's a huge danger because we're not supposed to look like the world. People that are living without hope, that are people that are living in despair because if God's not infinite love, we say it all the time, God is love. If he's not infinite love, then we should be worried. We should be concerned. We should be anxious. But we do have a redeemer. We need to believe in that God is love. We should look different than the world. 
And he's saying, I will redeem you. Basically saying, you are all the people in town know that you're a worthy woman. He said, you are a bride worth winning. You're a bride worth winning is what he's saying. And Jesus says that to you individually and to the church corporately, that you are a bride worth winning. He's not stuck with you. Do you know that? God's not stuck with you. He actually has chosen you. He's chosen you to be part of his family, to be part of his bride. The devil wants to make us feel like dirt. That's what he wants to make us feel like. But once God has chosen us, that gives you and I infinite value. Infinite value. Uh, does anybody collect things? I know Bob collects stuff. <laughs> um, so I used to collect like sports memorabilia and things like that. And every time we move, I look through it all and I'm like, junk, junk, you know, stuff that I thought was cool. Not cool anymore. It's worthless. I thought I collected all these baseball cards because people said, don't throw away your baseball cards because they're going to be worth. No, they're not worth anything. <laughs> the whole baseball market left in the 80s and 90s. But anyway, um, things that belong to famous people become very valuable, not because of what they are, but because who they belong to. Uh, I was reading this week about Napoleon's toothbrush. Napoleon's toothbrush sold for $21,000. A nasty toothbrush. Jackie Kennedy's fake pearls, fake pearls, sold for $211,000. Michael Jordan's first pair of Nikes that he wore sold for $560,000. That's crazy. This one takes the cake. I had to look this up a couple times to make sure it was true. The Dukes of Hazard General Lee, the car, right? One of one version of that car sold for $9.9 million. That car ain't worth $9.9 million. Not because those things were valuable or anything significant, but that'd be because they belonged to someone or something significant. The psalmist in, in Psalm 103 says that he knows that we are but dust. Without him, that's what we are. We're dust. But with him, we have infinite value because we belong to him. He says, everybody knows that you're a worthy woman. Boaz is saying, listen, I understand the need. I see the panic. I don't necessarily approve of the method, of the method, but I will redeem you. I will do it. He says, and now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he'll redeem you, good. But if not, then I'll do it. So she laid his feet in the morning and arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be lone that a woman came to the threshing floor. So the whole thing's moving along pretty swimmingly. Then all of a sudden we hit the speed bump. There's another redeemer? Like, who could that be? And what does that symbolize? That's kind of a, a crazy thing. So now all of a sudden she's done this. She's taken this huge risk coming to the threshing floor. Now he says, might not be me. That's got to worry her a little bit. And I hate to leave you with a cliffhanger, but we'll have to talk about that next week on who that redeemer is and what that symbolizes. So that's where faith comes in in the story here, right? There's another one. And if he'll do it, fine. But if he won't, if he's not willing, then I'll do it. And so faith comes into the picture right now. Um, he says, let it not be known. Boaz is concerned about both of their integrity here, about his integrity, about her integrity. He doesn't want anyone to know that she came here. And one of the things that I think is important here is that he did not make the mistake of interpreting uh, a temptation with an opportunity. You know, this would have been, I mean, let's face it, this would have been a huge temptation for him. It's the middle of the night. He's got a woman who has gotten all gussied up and perfume that's come down to him at the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Nobody's around. And yet his godliness shines through and says, I want you to go. 
I don't want anybody to know that you were here. And I am going to take care of you, um, but leave now. And I think in a lot of questions, in a lot of situations, we ask the question, "What am I supposed to do? You know, what am I supposed to do in this situation?" And really, the question I think we should ask is, "How can I best honor God in this situation?" And that's going to answer a lot of questions, and that's going to keep us from a lot of heartache and a lot of bad decisions if we ask, "How can I best glorify Him in this situation?" Then, what am I supposed to do, right? And so his godliness wins out. And he says, quick, bring the garment, bring what you're wearing, set it down here on the floor. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some more grain in it. So he had given her a ton before. I think I said like 30 pounds for an ephah. It was the measurement that was given. I did some research up to 50. Some said up to 50 pounds of grain. In either case, it was more than she could have gotten on her own, way more. She had been completely blessed and it gave us a measurement. This time it just says six measures of grain doesn't give us an exact measurement uh, and it's because the measurement itself isn't actually that important the number is what's important in this situation um, it says six measures of grain what is significant about the number six the number six in the Bible is the number of man man was created on the sixth day and so six is the number of man it also speaks to our incompleteness as man because seven is the number of perfection so we're one short of perfection because we are in need of one the one Jesus it also speaks to our labors as man because God worked for six days in creation and then he rested on the Sabbath and he told all of his people listen work for six days and then rest so there's the anticipation of a rest of a Sabbath coming after those six days and so he's trying to send a message to Naomi to the little matchmaker things are in motion I'm working on it okay um, I am going to redeem you. I'm, this thing's in motion. Uh, I know you've had a hard road, but rest is coming. And I will complete it. It's not completed yet, but it will be completed, and I'll see it through. And that's something she can rest in. Now, check this out. I saw this is interesting because it says, after he put it on her, that she went into the city. If you look in your in your Bibles, mine on the, the English Standard uh, you know, translation says that she went into the city. But as I was looking, a lot of the versions, a lot of the translations say that he went into the city, which is really strange. You don't see that very often. Is it he went into the city or is it she went into the city? Is this gender confusion? <laughs> no. I don't know why. I tried my best to get to the bottom of it. I couldn't. Um, I'll get an answer for you. Or if you want to do some homework this week, go figure out why it says that. Um, I think they both went into the city. That's what I think. I know, I know Ruth went back into the city to Naomi. But I also think that Boaz went into the city intentionally, purposefully, so he would not be detoured, so he wouldn't be sidelined by anything that was going to be happening back home. He wanted to be first thing in the morning at the gate where the elders were going to be so they could get this thing settled. And it tells us that when Jesus was heading to Jerusalem uh, during Holy Week, that he set his face like flint when he was going. He wasn't going to be detoured. He wasn't going to be sidetracked. And that's what Boaz is doing here. He's like, listen, I'm going into the city. Uh, I just thought it was interesting. Some say he and some say she. It's kind of weird. But I think they both went there intentionally to get this worked out. And then when she got home, Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. So Naomi gets the point. She got the message. Uh, Naomi gets the, the message that Boaz says, listen. Try this one on for size. I got your message, now get my message. I'm gonna take care of you. No more, no more scheming, no more furious planning. You can just rest. I'm gonna get it taken care of. 
But here's the awesome thing, the glorious thing about our Redeemer is he's not working on it. He already did it. It's already done. Three of the greatest words in the whole Bible. It is finished. It is finished. It's done. He already did it. There's nothing that we can do. Just like the covenants didn't depend on us, our salvation doesn't depend on us or anything that we can do. Um, Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites were unclean. They weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed in religious services. Just like the woman who had the issue of blood. Unclean. Jesus cleansed her. Boaz is getting ready to redeem Ruth, as we'll see next week. It's a beautiful picture. So the covenant redeemer Boaz showed his hased, his steadfast, loving kindness towards Ruth, in that even though she was an outsider, he was going to love her. He had a promise, covenant love, a loyal love that he was showing her. Just like Jesus laid down his life for us because he thought we were a bride worth winning. That's right. Each and every one of you are a bride worth winning. Uh, I read this story um, that I was talking with Devin about. He's been doing a lot of studies uh, this last semester on World War II. And I read the story about these two friends, and they, uh, during World War II, they went to boot camp together. They had enlisted. Uh, they fought in the same company, and they were over in Europe. Uh, fighting and they were in the trenches and it was one of those situations where um, you know you had the trenches and then you had this no man's land uh, where people were trying to get out with lots of barbed wire and um, obstacles that people anytime they went up there people were dying and uh, this young man was in the trenches and he had heard that his his friend his best friend had gotten shot and was out on the field and so he gets ready to run up the ladder to go get his buddy and the sergeant pulls him down and says, there's no way you're going out there. It's suicide to go out there, and I'm not losing you. And so he turns around, and as soon as he turns around, he bolted up the ladder and out into the field. And he comes back, you know, sure enough, with his friend, who at that point had died, and he had gotten shot, and so at this point he's dying. And he stumbles back down into the trench, and the sergeant comes over, and he's like, you know, on, one, on the one hand, he's touched that he went and did this for his friend, but on the other hand, he's ticked. Because he's like, well, what a waste. I mean, now he's dead and you're dying. What good did that do? Didn't do any good. That was a huge waste. And the, and the boy looks up and he says, it wasn't a waste. Because when I got there, his final words were, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. Because they had this loyal love for each other. Kind of a David and Jonathan type of loyal love. He wasn't going to leave him there. He was going, even if it meant giving his life taking a bullet for his friend. He was going to be there. And I just thought when I read that story, that was a beautiful picture once again of what Hased is. This steadfast, you know, never breaking, never giving up, you know, never bending love. God's one way covenant love for his people um, that sacrificed everything for us. So it's a beautiful thing. And so one of the ways that we identify with Jesus, with his sacrifice, is through baptism. And I'm super excited that we're going to do a baptism here today. Um, why was Jesus even baptized? It's such a strange thing, right? Like the only person in history that didn't need to be baptized was Jesus, and yet he does it. And he shows up on the scene, and John the Baptist is like, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? And Jesus said, listen, for this situation, so that the scriptures could be fulfilled, let it be this way. John's like, okay, we'll do it. And so Jesus was baptized 
symbolically so that we could follow him in baptized in, in baptism to show how his death and resurrection gives us eternal life forgives our sins and so we do that as a way um, is it necessary do you have to do it no you don't have to be baptized but it's a way that we identify with his death and resurrection I mean if you think about it the the thief on the cross crucified next to Jesus and Jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise he didn't say gosh you know I wish we could get off the cross and go baptize you because <laughs> that's really what you need to be saved you don't have to be baptized to be saved but it is a way that we identify and show other people publicly I am identifying I am going on record of saying I'm a Jesus follower I'm submitting my life to him and I'm making him Lord of my life and so that's what we're going to do. Brett is going to come up here. We're going to have a baptism. This is really cool, guys. I, some of you don't know this, but... So we had been doing this a couple months. Uh, started on November 29th, and uh, Brett and his girlfriend showed up, and I was like, what are you doing here, man? Uh, <laughs> Brett's my cousin, for, these, for those of you that don't know. Uh, so this is pretty special to be able to do this when he showed up, and they've been coming to church. And um, now his sister's coming, and his mom's coming. And it's just, it's just a really neat story. And when he said, you know... I want to get baptized. I was like, he said, well, what, what, it'd be really cool if we could find a river. I'm like, that'd be awesome, man. If you find a river, let's go do it. You know, we'll do family and friends or we can wait and you could do it at, you know, church picnic. And so he said, you know, let's do it. And um, the water is maybe a little colder than a river. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It's cold. Um, so I'm excited about this today that he has made this decision. So I told him we'd wait till the end so he doesn't have to sit there and freeze during service. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to say anything? I just give him the option if he wanted to say anything before we did this. Do you want to say anything to everybody? Uh, man, real quick, I just like to say, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, early in their life get baptized because you know families doing it, this, that, and the other, and that's what happened to me. I was going to, at the time, my family was going to a Mormon church, and I was like, well. And everyone else is doing it, let's do it. So, uh, I didn't know what I was doing then. I wasn't actually following Christ at the time. And, uh, so today, this is my way of coming back, you know, and really I want to publicly show that this is what I'm wanting to do. And if that's anyone else's case here today, I'd like to encourage you to do something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Brett Ewing, based on your confession of faith, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, in that name that is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Buried with him in baptism. Rich.